John chapter 12, verses 12 to 36. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, they, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have learned from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. We live in a democracy, and that means that in general, we have trouble understanding or relating to this concept of a king or an absolute monarchy, which represents a king and, and, and his kingdom. They're very different. You know, a democracy is very different from a, an absolute monarchy. Right? In a democracy, a, a government for the people, by the people, officials are elected in place by the people, not so with a monarchy. Um, in, in, in democracy, the, uh, the opinion of the people counts, the, ex the expression of opinion uh, is encouraged and respected. There's no concept of public opinion in an absolute monarchy. And yet we see here a passage that talks about Jesus being a king. 
We live in a culture increasingly where our opinions are very, very important. And we laud them and we hold them up and everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But we come to a passage like this and we've sung about it this morning about a king. And what we see over the next eight chapters of the book of John is that uh, you have people that are doing their very best to not vote Jesus into office, so to speak. They do everything they can to keep him out, to get rid of him. And they think they have when he dies. But we know that Jesus is the king and that the death was his way ultimately into his ascension. We also live in a culture that wants to, to um, everyone wants to make the rules And we find in the kingdom of God and with Jesus as king that that just isn't the way it flies, that we don't decide what's right and wrong. We don't decide morally what's correct and acceptable, that the king decides that. And so we read a passage like this, and if you really read it with integrity, that Jesus is a king, and what that means, it can rub. And of course, it rubs against just even our sinful nature and our self-centered tendencies. But it's important to understand Jesus as a king. The question is why? Why is it so important to understand that, to understand Jesus as king? We're going to explore this question. We're going to explore the answer through really three points, and that is the the need for a king, the nature of the king, and what it means to follow the king. So let's start with the need for a king. This passage, this is Passover time, which means that people from all over the region have come and descended on Jerusalem for this annual feast. And the questions are bubbling up. Is Jesus going to show up? And the reason they're asking that is because uh, Jesus, since he raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious authorities have been out to arrest him and kill him. And so everybody's wondering, is Jesus going to show his face? And when they find out that he is coming, that he is coming to Jerusalem, what's their response? Look at verse 13. It says, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. To the word Hosanna here, it means save us, we pray. Rescue us, we pray. Hosanna. Now, why the palm branches? Well, palm branches had become in Israel's history a symbol of victory, a symbol of, of liberation, a symbol of hope. And whenever something like that happened, they would wave palm branches. And so they believe by what they're shouting and by the palm branches they're waving that the one has come, the Messiah has come, that's going to rescue them from all their problems. This is the story of the scriptures. This is the story of Israel's history of longing for a king. In fact, if you Look, don't turn there now, but 1 Samuel 8, maybe you can read it later. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel isn't satisfied with the judges that God has appointed to them through Samuel. And so they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king. Look at us. We need rescue. We need help. We've got problems. We want a king like all the other nations. And then God's response to Samuel is this. They have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And that is the story of the scriptures. You go back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve. What happened in the garden? They rejected God as their king and they became their own kings. By the time you get to the book of Judges, 
you see that Israel, when they fall flat on their face because they're not getting it done as their own king, they get into to, to deep trouble. They cry out, God, save us. What does God do? He, he sends a judge, and the judge rescues them and delivers them. They fall on their face again when they go back to their own kingship, and it's this cycle. And they finally say, we're done with judges. We want a king like every other nation. It's the story of the scriptures. It's the, it's the story of humanity. It's the human story. You realize that, that the human story has two parts. The first part is we long, to, we long for a king. We long for someone to give us peace and joy and prosperity and security and to give us worth, to give us purpose, that we are dependent creatures longing for a king, someone. The, the second part of the human story consistently is that we have rejected God as our king. But what I want you to see here is that, that the human story is one of a people that long to be led. You realize that. You long to be led. You long to be led. You long to be protected, to be secure, to be provided for. You long for that. It's the story of what it means to be human. And our culture, in our world, and your lives are very much evidence of that. Let me give you a few examples. This desire for a king, this longing for a king, it's the reason that every four years, our country gets charged and heated during the presidential election. It's the reason every four years that, that hate and disrespect spew over social media when a candidate loses, if you're on the wrong side of it. See, there's this idea that if we get the right president or the right king, then our problems will be solved. It's the reason why a young woman is devastated when what she thought was the man of her dreams and the person she was going to marry when that man breaks off an engagement. You see, if I can just get the right husband, it'll be the solution to my loneliness and to my insecurity. Now, marriage is beautiful, and God ordained it and instituted it. But I imagine that every married couple here can attest to the fact that their, I'll say every woman, that, that their husband is not the knight in shining armor that they thought he was going to be. That is just reality. We have this desire to be, to be led, to be provided for, to be secure, to be protected. It's the reason why we have heartbreaking stories of abuse that are at an all, not all-time high, but that have really ramped up in our culture, right? Whether it's coach player, uh, teacher, student, boss, employee, parent, child. You know, what's happening there is that someone in a place of authority and power, a king-like place, takes advantage of someone who is weak and vulnerable. And the person that's weak and vulnerable is just looking for someone to give them worth or security or protection or guidance. And because of sin, we have these awful stories of abuse, but it's just evidence that we long to be led. We're weak and vulnerable. We want someone to lead us, someone to protect us. It's the reason why over this past season, you've watched the president of the United States going to battle with the NFL over issues of race in our land and racism. We want someone, some entity, some king, some authority, some power to put an end to racism in our land. We have a longing to be led. 
And the evidence comes to a peak here at the beginning of what is called Jesus' triumphal entry. You see what happens here. They hear he's coming and they run out. They're waving palm branches. They're yelling, Hosanna. They're saying, King of Israel, he's here. And you say, wow, this is great. This is what they're supposed to do. This is how you respond to Jesus. But Jesus' response (laughs) indicates that there's something very wrong with the type of king they're looking for. He, he bursts their bubble very quickly because what they were looking for was a political king, someone to rescue them from Rome. And Jesus makes it clear, the king you're looking for is not the king that I am. So let me tell you what kind of king I am. And that brings us to our second point, which is the nature of the true king. What is the nature of Jesus as king? Now, there are tensions in this passage, two prominent ones. The one is people want Jesus to ride in on a war horse, take care of some business. He rides in on a donkey. Talk about the balloon being deflated quickly. (laughs) Uh, They expect this son of man to live and remain forever, verse 34. And all Jesus wants to do is talk about dying. Both of these tensions are setting up what is the true character of King Jesus. And I believe there's two characteristics here that really are at the forefront of this passage. And the first one is his humble obedience. Jesus the King's humble obedience. Verse 15, which describes him riding in on the donkey, is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here written years and years before. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. There it is. Your king's coming. He's going to rescue you. He's going to take care of your problems. Humble and mounted on a donkey. That's That's the big turn in the verse. The king's coming, we're going to be rescued. And he rides in on a donkey. Humility. Why why these humble circumstances? It's because Jesus' humility is tied to his obedience. His humility is tied to his obedience. Now you say, where in the world do we get obedience from this passage? Or at least Jesus' obedience. Well, look at verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus was troubled because he knew what was coming in five days. That five days later, he would be hanging on a cross, dying. And that was troubling because Jesus was fully human as well as fully God. And the reason he was troubled and he didn't just walk away is because he was absolutely committed to his father's will. He was absolutely committed to obeying his father and obeying his father's law. Every last bit of it. You know, when we talk about the law of God, which is basically just God's design for human life. As the king, he has a beautiful design for you. A beautiful design for life and he lays it out. And there's two parts of God's law. One is the positive demands. It's the Ten Commandments, encapsulated, summarized by the Ten Commandments. This says, this is how you're designed to live and flourish. 
That's the positive demand of the law. And Jesus, we know, fulfilled that, didn't he? He was sinless, never sinned, completely um, complied with every part of God's positive law. But there's another part of God's law, and that's the negative consequences or the negative penalties. The penalties that need to be paid for not obeying his law. And we see here that what Jesus is experiencing and what he's troubled by is this wrestling. He knows he wants to be absolutely obedient to his father's will, which means not only fulfilling the positive side, but what? Fulfilling the negative penalty of disobedience, which was death, which means that Jesus took the death penalty. He fulfilled every part of that part of God's law in your place. He took the death penalty for you. The inhumility, Christ fulfilled, listen to this, every last demand of God's law on you, positive and negative, he fulfilled it. I want you to imagine having to fill out a tedious application. Now you get in your brain whatever application that was for you. For us, most recently, it was a mortgage application. That is like pulling teeth over and over. It's tedious. There's so much stuff you have to gather, so many things you have to fill out, right? Well, the recent one, the, the most recent one we did um, was an online one. And so there was the application that had everything we had to do, but then there was on the front this like dashboard checklist that had every item just listed. And next to the item was, a, it was online, so a box that once you did it, you'd click. And when you clicked it, <clears throat> this red X would go to a green check. Felt good. So you, you go through every item and then you click and boom, red X turns to green check. Now, I want you to imagine that, that my mortgage processor or my mortgage lender came to us and said, okay, I'm gonna send you the application. It's long, it's, it's, it's expansive. And on the front, you're gonna see this checklist. It's gonna have a bunch of items and you're gonna see a bunch of red X's. What I need you to do is to fill everything out, gather everything, and when you finish it, check the box, it'll turn to a green check. I need all green checks. And once everything's green and checked, send it back to me, it's complete, right? I want you to imagine that my mortgage lender processor sends me this mortgage application, and I open it up, and I go to that dashboard checklist, and it's all green checks. And I go, oh, big problem here. Okay, so I called my mortgage lender. Hey, you sent it to me. There's a big problem. It's all green checks. I, I haven't done anything. I didn't gather the documents. I didn't fill anything else. This must be a mistake. And she looks at it. She looks at the application and she says, no, somebody must have filled it out for you. It's all complete. All the requirements are done. You're finished. Application done. Listen, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, if you have put your trust in him, all the red X's that represent the checklist of God's lawful demands on you are gone. They've all become green checks. That that is your status before God because Jesus Christ moved everything that was a red X to a green check by his life by his death, by his resurrection. He completed every last demand of God's law on you if you're in Christ. And so Jesus was humble. His, hum his humble obedience marks 
his, his work as a king. Second characteristic, though. Humble obedience, the second, though, is self-giving love. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, Jesus is using here an agricultural metaphor, and it's a powerful one, describing uh, his death and what it would produce. We live in North Florida, which means there's oak trees all over the place. And what you'll find is if an oak tree gets to a level of maturity and age, it begins to um, drop acorns and little saplings start popping up from the ground, right? And what's happened is an acorn from the tree has dropped down into the ground and it has sprouted as a sapling. And over many, many years, that sapling will grow up into an oak tree and start to drop acorns and more saplings will grow. The idea is this, that an oak tree does not sprout until an acorn drops into the ground. That new life comes from or sprouts out of death. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That there is no new life that sprouts in this world unless he first dies, goes into the ground. And we see in, in, in verse 32, he, he accentuates this even further. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What does lifted up mean? Well, verse 33 tells us. It says it's the kind of death he was going to die, literally lifted up on a cross. He says, I'll draw all people to myself. That doesn't mean every single person on the face of the earth. It means all kinds of people. Greeks, Jews, Romans, black, white, Asian, Indian, Hispanic, all nations, right? That's what he means. He's not just Israel's political king. He's the savior of the world. He's the savior of the world. Most kingdoms do anything they can do to protect their king, don't they? Any chess players in the crowd? If you play chess, what do you do? You protect the king, right? King falls, the kingdom's lost. I'll give you a, a, a more... A historical example, when the Allied forces uh, invaded Normandy on D-Day, 1944, uh, British, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was set on or desiring or wanting to be on the ship in the English Channel so he could witness the invasion. And U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower got wind of this and started working to try to keep this from happening because he did not want Winston Churchill to get killed in battle. And so when he realized there was no way he was going to change Churchill's mind, he appealed to a higher authority. And so Eisenhower talked to King George VI, King of England. King George goes to Churchill and says, if you think it's so important to be on the ship to witness this invasion, then me too. I'm coming with you. And guess what Churchill did? He backed off. He said, I'm not going out there then because I can't put the king in danger, right? You protect the king at all costs. And Jesus Christ here does just the opposite. Does just the opposite. King Jesus surrenders his body to be crucified 
He gives a king's ransom, his life for the life of his people, you and me. Selfless love, self-giving love is what characterizes our king. Humble obedience, selfless love, self-giving love. And now the question is, well, what does it mean then to follow such a king? What does it mean to follow such an amazing king? A humble king. A king that, that lays his life down for you. That surrenders his body to be crucified. What does it mean to follow such a king? Look what Jesus says in verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now understand that Jesus is speaking this in response to something that's been said. And in verse 20, we learned that the, the Greeks had come to Philip and said, we, wanna, we wish to see Jesus. And so Philip gets Andrew and they go to Jesus. And what's interesting is Jesus' first response, right? There's some Greeks, non-Jews, that are saying, Jesus, we wanna see you. And what does Jesus say? Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, this is almost a trigger for Jesus, that the, the time has come. He came for the entire world, and here are some Greeks that want to see him, and Jesus goes, now's the time, because I've come to save the world. But what's interesting is, is how he answers them through Philip and Andrew. Notice what he said. He doesn't say yes. Uh, uh, yes, Philip and Andrew, I would love to sit down with the Greeks, have a cup of coffee, talk about who I am, have a very rationalistic discussion. I know how the Greeks work. Just send them my way. We'll talk. He doesn't say yes. He also doesn't say no. He talks about a grain of wheat falling to the ground, which is what he was going to do. And then he talks about hating your life instead of loving your life. That's his answer to this request to see him. What do we learn by that? What's he saying to these Greeks who had made that request? What's he saying to us today? Here's what I think he's saying. If you really want to see Jesus, to get to know him and understand what he's about, then you must get ready to be planted in the same way, to deny self and risk all in his service. You see, hating your life that simply means denying self. It means instead of serving yourself, serving Jesus sacrificially. Denying self, serving Jesus sacrificially, risking all, losing everything for the sake of this, this amazing King Jesus. Now, what does that look like practically? What's it look like practically to deny self, to serve, to risk all? Let me give you a few thoughts here. It means giving your resources until it hurts. It means giving your resources until it causes you to sacrifice something. Giving your resources until it alters your lifestyle, until it gets uncomfortable. 
That's what it means to, to serve, to risk all, to deny self. It means talking to your neighbor or your coworker about how Jesus is changing your life, how Jesus is giving you hope in the midst of something that you're dealing with. And it means doing that in such a way that it has you uncomfortable and anxious and your, your, your palms are sweating. You know what that feels like. That's what it means to risk all, to serve Jesus, to deny self, is to get after sharing the gospel and sharing your own story with people, even though it feels uncomfortable. That's what it means to hate your life and not love your life. It means standing faithfully for Christ in your school, even though it may make you unpopular and it may cause you to lose friends. Talked to a couple pastor friends last week. And they said that their late middle school aged children experienced a significant amount of persecution for faithfully testifying to Christ in the area of sexuality when they were asked by their classmates. That's what it means to deny self, to serve King Jesus, to risk all. It means resisting the American dream. I'm probably being soft with that language. It means taking the American dream and kicking it to the curb. And the materialism and the consumerism that grabs hold of hearts and strips you of your, your life and your meaning and your purpose and reducing life to something like that when you've got a king that died for you. And we want to say, Jesus, thanks for dying for me. I believe you so that I can be saved for eternity, but I'm going to just pursue the American dream. That's not what it means to hate your life. That's what it means to love your life. It means trading in your ambitions and your, your, your agendas that are centered on self for a much greater ambition that Jesus will give you. That's what he promises. You trade in your ambitions and your agendas that are centered around self, and Jesus says, I'm gonna give you an ambition and an agenda and a goal and a reason for living that you could never experience when you're your own king. Here's how all this sums up. Is your life your best answer to King Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all nations that starts in your home with your children, goes to your neighbors, goes to your coworkers, goes to the city, yes, goes to the world? Is your very life your best answer to King Jesus' great commission over you? Chuck Colson, not our Mandarin friend, Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson, who came to Christ after being sent to prison for his involvement in the Watergate scandal during Richard Nixon's presidency, shared this story about his hometown in Naples, Florida, which he calls one of the garden spots of the world. Listen to what he said. It's an absolute nirvana for all golfers. And they all come there 
They're all CEOs of major corporations and they retire to Naples. And this is it, 27 golf courses and miles of sparkling beach in the best country clubs. I watch these guys. They're powerful people. They have this New York look on their face. They're determined. But now all of a sudden, they start measuring their lives by how many golf games they can get in. I often say to them, do you really want to live your life counting up the number of times you chase that little white ball around those greens? And they kind of chuckle, but it's a nervous chuckle. Because in six months, they've realized how banal their lives are, and they've got beautiful homes, castles, and when they get bored with that, they build a bigger castle, and they're miserable. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's what Jesus said, and that's what he says to you. Now, listen, where's the power to do this? Where's the power to kick the American dream to the curb when the culture all around you says, that's it? Live for the American dream, and if you get there, you'll be happy. Where's the power to kick that to the curb? Where's the power to give of your resources until it hurts? Until you have to sacrifice something, until you have to alter your lifestyle. Where's the power to do that? Where's the power to stand up for Christ in a culture that that doesn't want anything to do with him and it may cost you friends, and it may make you unpopular. Where's the power to do this? And Jesus gives it to us. It's his promise at the end of verse 26. Look at it. If anyone serves me, he says, and and serves me, that means deny self, lay it all down, lay it on the line for King Jesus. That's what he's saying. If anyone serves me, follows me. The Father will honor him. There's a great picture of this in the end of Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, who's the first deacon of this early church, he has just stood up and he has preached a sermon about Jesus Christ. He's testified to who Jesus is to a hostile crowd. They want nothing to do with it. And it says at the end of his sermon, there's gnashing of teeth. They're so angry. You talk about risking all. Stephen stands up and says, I will be faithful to my Lord Jesus, to my King Jesus. I don't care what it costs me. So they pick up stones. And they're about to stone Stephen to death. Can you think of a worse way to die? Being stoned to death. So they're about to stone him to death. And right before they do, end of Acts 7 says that Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, looks up into heaven, sees the glory of God with Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God, not sitting. It's as if Jesus Christ is giving Stephen a standing ovation. That a boy, Stephen. And he's about to lose his life. When you lay it all down for Jesus, when you deny self, when you alter your lifestyle, when you give till it hurts, when you kick the American dream to the curb, when you uh, talk to your coworkers and your neighbors and maybe you get shut down and maybe you have someone receive what you say, and when all of that, 
When you do that, Jesus says the Father will honor you, which means that God the Father, the one who made this world and this universe, who is the king, it means that you will hear the roar of the Father. You will hear the praise of the Father. You will hear the honor of the Father. That's the gospel. That we lay it down for such an amazing King Jesus. And that when we lay it down and it hurts, we've got God the Father to honor and to roar and to praise and to remind us that we're not to love our life, but then when we hate our life in this world, we will keep it unto eternal life, which means that that roar that the Father sings over you will carry on for eternity. Let's pray. Father, I will be the first to confess that I get so wrapped up in this world. The American dream, ease and comfort, security. And I'll be the first to confess that I can be my own king and make sure that everything's secure and believe that somehow I can, I can do that. And I know, Father, as I confess that, I don't do that alone, that we are a people that do that. That we love our lives. That we love this world. That we love comfort and ease and peace. And yet we think that we can be our own kings and bring that. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, fill us with your Spirit that we would hate our lives, which means nothing more than to, to deny our life, to deny ourselves. And to lay our lives down, to lose everything for the sake of an amazing king. Father, would you, by your spirit, would you prompt us to give until it hurts? To give until we feel it? Would you prompt us to walk next door to our neighbors or to get out in the front of our house so that we can see our neighbors and share about this King Jesus who has changed us? Would you push us out of our office to the cubicle next to us? Would you move us into the parks where we play with our kids to the mom who's sitting there by herself, a single mom? Father, would you keep us from from playing church? Would you keep us from being enamored by the American dream? Would you remind us that there are people right now that we know in our lives that are dying and going to hell apart from you, Christ? And Father, would we not be guilted into doing this when we first fix our eyes on your son Jesus, the true king, who surrendered his body to be crucified, who laid everything down for us, that we in turn, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but out of delight, that we would say, I will willingly, and we will willingly lay everything down 
for you, King Jesus, because you're worthy, period. And would we be changed? And would our neighborhoods be changed? And would Jacksonville Beach be changed? Would our children be changed? Oh Lord, please don't let us grow up raising children that don't see the sacrifice of the, the gospel, first the king, but our lives in response. Would they see parents who are laying it all down for King Jesus? And would they grow up and turn into teenagers and young adults willing to lay it all down for King Jesus? Father, give us the grace, the power, the strength to hate our lives, to deny self, because we know that, Father, when that happens and as we do that, that you are the one who honors us and praises us and, and roars over us and sings over us, not just now, but for eternity. And Father, as we close now in worship and sing about your son Jesus, a king like this, that as we sing these words, would you be honored? Would you be glorified? Would you be worshiped? In Christ's name we pray, amen.